This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome. I will spare you the introduction I gave yesterday. Um, except to say, should I mention the thing about the symposium? Okay, I'll do that. Yeah. Uh, I very, um, I'm in literature, and so I'm very careful. I try to be careful about words. And I conspicuously made the choice not to call this a conference, because conference to me means stuffy, uh, bloated. Uh, um, so a symposium, if you do look it up in the OED, actually says the definition of a symposium is, quote, this is the first definition, too. It's not buried like before. Quote, a drinking party. Uh, a convivial meeting for drinking, conversation, and intellectual entertainment. Okay. Properly among the ancient Greeks, hence generally. So we did some drinking last night as sort of preparatory to today. We're not too hungover, I think. But uh, it really was conceived as being small, intimate, convivial, entertaining in an intellectual and other fashion. Uh, I won't go through the long list of, of people who helped put this on because I thank them once enough. Um, but I also want to thank uh, Linda Lee, who is not here, but she's our student coordinator who's actually bringing her 17-year-old sister over to watch these films. So that's, she's up. Uh, I'm just going to introduce the panelists. We have one panel uh, this afternoon. Then we'll take a break. There will be refreshments out there. And then we'll reconvene to have screenings by um, three great um, filmmakers uh, who we're fortunate to have here with us. So they'll give some comments, tell you how they conceived of the films, what they were trying to accomplish. We'll watch clips from the films, and then have a, a very wide open discussion. So please um, stay for the day. So without any further ado, let me just introduce our panelists today. Uh, the first speaker will be Karen Kuo, who serves as an academic associate and assistant director of the program in Asian, Amer Asian Pacific American Studies at Arizona State University, where she teaches courses on Asian Pacific American literature, history, and film. She has a BA in psychology from UC Santa Barbara and a master's from uh, UC Riverside in English. Uh, Karen is, as we speak, completing a dissertation entitled Lost Imaginaries, Film and Popular Cultural Representations of Asian Pacific Americans from World War I to World War II um, in Literature and Asian American Studies at the University of Washington. This work explores the effects of US diplomacy, history, and American popular culture and social politics on early 20th century representations of Asians and Asia. Her teaching and research interests focus on studies in race, ethnicity, and gender, film studies and theory, immigrant literature, post-colonial theory, and 20th century British and American literature. In addition to publications in journals such as the Journal of Asian American Studies, she's co-editing a volume on the history and contemporary position of Japanese Americans in Arizona. Her future work will explore the formation of Taiwanese-American communities and identity during the Cold War. Our second speaker is Stephen Lee, who is a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Modern Thought and Literature program here at Stanford. His master's thesis focused on Langston Hughes's travels in the Soviet Union, and his dissertation traces the interactions of American and Soviet conceptualizations of difference, both before and during the Cold War. In 2001-2002, he was one of the first group of American uh, Fulbright students to be sent to Central Asian Republics. And his research project is based in uh, Kalazad and Uzbekistan, comparing Soviet Korean and Korean American literature and art with a particular focus on Soviet national policy. 
And we're very fortunate to have as our respondent my colleague Gordon Chang. Uh, and I will read the description that Gordon gave me because um, uh, it starts off as had a somewhat non-traditional career. I didn't want that to be judgment to be imputed to me. This is okay. A somewhat non-traditional career entered graduate school to study modern Chinese history and left a year later and was involved with political activism for over 10 years. He was also taught Asian and Asian American studies and community college in Oakland. Then he re-entered graduate school here at Stanford and received a PhD in US history. He taught at UC Irvine for a year and a half and then returned to Stanford in 1991. And he was actually the very first director of Asian American studies and one of the um, founders of the program as well as the program in comparative studies and race and ethnicity. Uh, Gordon teaches courses related to Asian American history and U.S. foreign relations, especially U.S.-East Asia relations. His publications include Friends and Enemies, The United States, China, and the Soviet Union, 1948-1972, uh, Morning Glory, Evening Shadow, The Wartime Writing of Yamato Ichihashi, and Asian Americans and Politics. With Purnima Mankeka and uh, Akil Guta, he helped reissue Cast and Outcast by uh, Don Gopal Mukherjee, and last month saw publication of two edited works he worked on, one with, uh, edited with, uh, by Judy Young and Mark Him, uh, Him Mark Lai called uh, Chinese American Voices, and also uh, before, before interment, essays by Yuji Ichi, uh, Ichioka. So uh, without any further ado, we'll start with Karen's presentation, move on to Stevens, and then get Gordon's response, and then open it up for our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, David, for the introduction, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, my paper is entitled Horizons Lost, Found and Lost, Capra's Lost Horizon and the Recontainment of Utopia. In 1937, Columbia Pictures released one of the most extravagant and expensive films ever made, Frank Capra's Lost Horizon, which cost an estimated $2 million. Based on British writer James Hilton's 1933 novella, Lost Horizon was an international bestseller. However, Capra's cinematic adaptation did not even make back its production costs. Some critics declared that the film too long, its subject matter too abstruse. Only a small minority of film critics praised Capra's film for its aesthetic qualities and its meaningful social content in the aftermath of World War I and during the Depression era. Like its novelistic predecessor, Capra's Lost Horizon presents a utopian paradise that protects its residents from an outside world plagued by greed, war, and poverty. In contrast to the real world, this fantasy place was named Shangri-La and situated at both the physical and ideological remove, not only from the social and political chaos of war and economic depression, but also, and more precisely, from the factious politics of nation versus nation and the destructive effects of unbridled capitalism. Constructed as a non-territorialized space, Lost Horizon presents Shangri-La as a mysterious and elusive geographic locale. The film essentially maps the terra incognita, existing somewhere within Asia and yet outside of any boundaries of country or nation, offering an alternative society to that of 1930s America. Perhaps it is precisely this ambiguity that made it adaptable to different historical contingencies, but difficult for a popular American audience to read. The plot itself is not hard to follow. The film opens to a long shot of a darkened landscape within the war-torn city of Basque School in 1935, where hostile Asian natives surround a small air station holding European and American expatriates and tourists. Robert Conway, played by Ronald Coleman, 
who was Britain's man of the East, is seen desperately evacuating the last remaining Euro-Americans from being butchered in this ambiguous civil war. Okay, so you could probably see from the pages of the books probably why it kind of alienated its audiences. It was, you know, slightly hokey and sentimental. Okay. Conway eventually escapes on the last plane out of bus school, uh, with the four remaining white evacuees comprised of Conway's brother, George Conway, a British paleontologist, Dr. Alexander P. Lovett, and two Americans, a prostitute named Gloria and a businessman named Bernard. Unbeknownst to Conway and the passengers, the plane is hijacked by a mysterious Asian man who brings the evacuees deep within a region within Tibet to a place called Shangri-La. Shangri-La exists within a hidden valley only accessible through a small, narrow crevice where it is shielded by high mountains on all sides from the cold and wind. While outside the climate is inclement and dangerous, a no-man's land where few dare to venture, inside the valley of Shangri-La it is a fecund and fertile Eden. Initially fearing that they are all captives, each evacuee, including Conway, discovers that Shangri-La's philosophy of a communal, peaceful, and non-competitive existence is preferable to the war and poverty that exists outside. Headed by a 250-year-old Belgian priest named Father Perrault, whom everyone calls the High Lama, Shangri-La is comprised of people who live in moderation and in being kind to one another. This particular lifestyle imbues extraordinary powers to its inhabitants, and like the fountain of youth, physical aging is dramatically slowed in Shangri-La. It is explained to Conway that residents of Shangri-La die of natural causes, and thus their prolonged lives are not only the result of pure air, water, and climate, but from their people's lack of struggle. However, George Conway remains unconvinced of this paradise and eventually convinces his brother Robert to leave with him and another unfaithful Shangri-La inhabitant, a woman named Maria, a young Russian woman who arrived in the mid-19th century. Conway, who was told by Chang, a Chinese resident and second-in-command to Father Perot within Shangri-La, that although Maria does not look a day beyond 20, her real age in the outside world would be closer to 80. George and Maria tell Conway a different story, that she was kidnapped and held hostage here three years ago by an insane and delusional Father Perot and his accomplice Chang. Against his better judgment, Conway decides to flee with George and Maria. The journey, however, prove, proves too difficult and treacherous, especially for Maria, and she eventually dies of exhaustion. Post-mortem, Maria reverts to her real age of 80, and upon witnessing this transformation, George goes insane, jumps off a snowy cliff to his death. Conway survives on his own, arriving near death at a Tibetan mission when the British authorities are notified about his unbelievable appearance. But Conway eventually escapes from them in order to return to Shangri-La. The film's ending shows Conway on a mountain precipice spying the, op the opening to the portal of Shangri-La. <clears throat> Lost Horizon proved to be an important ideological statement, both as a vehicle for Capra to explore the imaginative possibilities of a pacifist utopian world, and later as a vehicle for revamped Americanism and the reinvention of democracy against fascism in World War II. Capra's Lost Horizon is thus important to our understanding of how the shifting relations between Asia and the U.S. during the 1930s came to a definitive crisis with the U.S. entrance into World War II. These relations had everything to do with modern America's image of itself. In their perspective, Lost Horizon is a historical cinematic text that gives clues to the ways that U.S. national identity was being articulated in, respectively, a 1930s quasi-social democratic utopia and then militarized Pacific state. Today, I will discuss how Lost Horizon tries to imagine an existence where no Western notions of nation, democracy, 
and masculinity can be questioned and redefined, rescripting not only white maleness, but also the prerogatives of Western mas masculinist culture, economic, political, imperialistic, and military aggression. In conclusion, I assert that even though the film verges on giving strong references to ideals associated with anti-imperialism, it falls short, not because of narrative failure, but because utopia, ironically, is unreadable unless secured in an identifiable national location. This is reversed upon the outbreak of World War II, which rehabilitates the positive notion of nationalism and mobilizes it against fascism. Perhaps one of the more liberal parts of the film that was severely edited down is the speech given by Father Perot, which was staunchly, staunchly pacifist and can even be read as anti-imperialist. Taken directly from Hilton's novel, <clears throat> Capper leaves intact Father Perot's mildly spoken yet trenchant criticism of war, where Shangri-La is the alternative society with, quote, a dream and a vision of peace. The novel very explicitly connects the reason for the vision as part of the preservation of the great works of civilization in danger of perishing because of man's lust and brutality, in which such warnings can only point to the accumulation of territory by nations and the inevitable destruction of culture once nations absorb other nations. Shangri-La becomes the culmination of culture, not strictly Western but Eastern as well, a place that deflects the destruction and brutality outside to maintain culture within it is perhaps the vision of Conway's, quote, better worlds. Rerouted toward the aims of its time, Capra's vision was to advocate for peace in an unstable world where fascism's aggression and acquisition of empire can be observed in Europe in 1936. At the time that Capra filmed Lost Horizon in 1936, the Axis powers officially signed military pacts, though the invasion and territorialization of Europe, Russia, North Africa, and Asia by Germany, Italy, and Japan was already an international crisis. Following the filming of It Happened One Night, Capra suffered a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized during the film's opening night. <clears throat> Capra recounts that while in the hospital, a quote, little man came to visit him and chastised him for not using his God-given talents for a divine purpose. Meanwhile, Capra recalls that while this little man shamed him, Hitler's raspy voice was shrieking out of the radio. According to Capra, it was after this experience that he began to feel conflict over making films for entertainment solely. Thus, the making of Lost Horizon represented Capra's newly found responsibility in making films that would provide meaningful purpose in the form of social critique, especially during these dangerous times of imminent war. And yet, Capra explained that in making Lost Horizon, the film's message would be more effective if veiled. Quote, Lost Horizon was essentially a morality play, a poetic saga. But poetic sagas can be dangerous. If an audience gets a hint of what you're up to before they are conditioned, they may resent it and shy away. That is why films about Lincoln, about saints, about Christ are dangerous." Unquote. Hence, while the concept of empire is never explicitly uttered in the film, its associations can be understood through the film's identification of a generalized conflict between nations, seen through the victimization of its male citizens. The film's anti-imperialist message was thus nearly indecipherable to American audiences and ridden with Capra's own erasures of Hilton's novella that also conveyed Western modernity's repression of decolonization. However, and perhaps because of the caution found in the above quote, Capra's potential critique of empire can only be understood through the alternative construction of non-aggressive masculinity within the film. Any potential critique of imperialism becomes sublimated or otherwise veiled through a heroic, albeit alternative, masculinity represented by Robert Conway, 
One, that the American public could not adequately decipher at the, mo at the time. In effect, though, the film postulates a post-national ideal that also formulates how an alternative masculine hero can bring about a society that exists outside of the conflictual ideologies of nation versus nation. Empire can only be cursorily read as a necessary evil and not systemic to the construction of nation. As Britain's man of the East, soldier, diplomat, and foreign secretary of England, Conway has achieved the pinnacle of Western masculine success. At the same time, Conway feels he is merely a man who takes orders and carries out the duties of the state whether he likes it or not. Conway exchanges the expected code of masculine prowess based on aggressivity and cunning for one based on rationality and preserving peace. After the plane takes off from Bascoul, Conway's brother George makes a toast to him for safely evacuating all the Europeans and Americans and also to congratulate him for his new role as Britain's new foreign secretary. In this fantasy, Conway concocts a familiar scenario of negotiations between antagonistic countries, but instead of approaching the other country with threatening rhetoric, he convinces them through peaceful persuasion based on common sense and reason. As a result, these hypothetical enemies come to see how reasonable he really is and commensurably disarm. Proposing to utter the unmentionable, Conway declares to George that these quote, centuries of traditions will be, will, of force will instead be kicked in the back. This fantasy, fueled by Conway's inebriated imagination, criticizes the way politics are handled between nations. But it is a simplified version, regarding diplomats and heads of the states as fellows who can be reasonable, and in this sense, appeals to a belief in man's innate goodness. Nevertheless, this appeal to man's innate goodness makes him vulnerable to victimization by, typically understood in capitalist films, as a faceless and callous nation-state. Similar to Bernard, Lovett, and Gloria, the other evacuees, individual experiences of corruption and degradation by a faceless capitalist machinery, Conway also views himself as another victim, except one who is a victim of a nation-state machinery. The nation-state's victimization of its male citizens, even Conway, who becomes both agent and victim of the state, renders any critique of empire ineffectual, admitting to George that he will simply not pursue any of the changes he just confidently asserted. Conway says that he will be a good little boy and fall right into line, because he hasn't got the guts to do anything else. Thus, the type of masculine virtue that Conway proposes and aspires to live by can only be interpreted at this juncture as impotence, cowardice, and infantilization. Even as George reminds Conway that he just saved hundreds of lives in Bascoul, Conway not only remains unconvinced of his valor, but in a rather surprising response, he pointedly identifies Britain and the colonial state's double standards and retorts to George, but do we tell them that we just left 10,000 natives to be annihilated down there? No, because they don't count. This oblique omission of imperialism thus ends only as a brief flash of the white man's enlightened recognition of imperialist genocide, but situated within Conway's own rhetoric of cowardice and impotence. At the same time, the identification of native lives lost is a disavowal of empire through the trope of the white man's burden, expressed by melancholic Conway. In spite of this, the film's critique of masculine aggression associated with the modern West war machines remains, though surprisingly, less as a critique of empire than as a critique of nationalism. Contained thus as a critique of nationalism, it is no surprise that upon the outbreak of World War II, it could easily be inverted and retooled as a pro-American, nationalistic, and anti-fascist film. In 1942, Columbia Pictures re-released Lost Horizon after it was re-edited to fit into the country's vision of democracy and war against fascism. The film's title was changed from Lost Horizon to Lost Horizon of Shangri-La. 
The opening sequence of the film, which flips the pages of the books describing the war-torn city of Basque School, 1933, became changed to Basque School, China. If you remember, it already had China on there. But um, actually, according to James Hilton's novel, Basque School is in India. And the date changes from 1933 to 1937, the date of the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War. Added to the rest of this page was the insertion of the Japanese, where in Basque School it's not simply 90 white people who were about to be butchered in a civil war, but 90 people who were about to be butchered by Japanese hordes. The specific identification of Japanese atrocity after Pearl Harbor and U.S. entrance into the war aligned with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's appropriation of the name Shangri-La which was also, he named his presidential retreat Shangri-La, which is now Camp David. And it also referred to basically the secret hiding place in which the first bombs were dropped on Japanese territory. Suddenly, the no place and the no conflict conundrum that plagued film viewers became clearly understood as China's victimization by the, by the Japanese, presided over by American sympathy and support. And thus, the symbols of Lost Horizon were reappropriated to deliver a strategic message entirely at odds with the original intent of the film. Between these two intents, we can gauge the shifting figurations of Asia as demanded by two historically specific ideological formations, that of pre-war utopianism and social commentary, and that of wartime national defense and propaganda. In the first instance, the unboundedness that Asia represents becomes an unreadable signifier. Where do Asia and America come together, collide, and interact? In the second instant, that question is all moot. The war forced an identification of Shangri-La as China, and in doing so, effaced the illusion of utopia, locating it with a specific national designation, and in one stroke, breaking the spell of utopia. And I just want to add before I finish, just as a curiosity, that it was, this film was actually shown to German POWs as a re-education about the perils of fascism after the war. Um, so it, it has a lot of really interesting uh, re-education tools, and it was actually used um, within the school system for a while to teach, even though it has nothing to do with Asia, teach kids about Asia. <laughs> Thank you. So my talk is on, it's actually an introduction more than anything else, to Soviet rock and film star Viktor Tsoi, who is perhaps the most prominent and most enduring cult figure to emerge from the Perestroika period. He also happened to be half Korean, and while this apparently didn't mean much to him, my talk will focus on how his Koreanness has been highlighted since his tragic death in 1990 and the Soviet collapse in 1991. So we're going to start with a bit of music. This is the song Slidiza Savoy, which means look after yourself, which warns of imminent doom. Uh, the title of my talk is Victor Tsoi at Sundance, Soviet Counterculture and the Korean Diaspora. And these are the three parts of my talk. The first part is Victor Tsoi, the Soviet phenomenon. Uh, this is an overview of Tsoi and his rise to fame during the uh, Perestroika period. Uh, the second part is Victor Duce, how from the 1990s Tsoi has been increasingly perceived as Korean, both by Soviet Koreans and by South, there he is, by South Koreans. And part three is Victor Tsoi in America. I'll touch upon his visit to the Sundance Film Festival in 1990 and will propose ways in which we, uh, meaning Asian Americanists, might perceive Tsoi. So first, in way of a brief bio, uh, Victor Tsoi was born 
1962 in Leningrad. He studied painting at the Serov Art Academy, but was expelled at age 18 for not doing his work. Two years later, in 1982, he formed the underground rock group Kino. And in this context, underground has a real edge to it. Uh, Kino was part of what was called the Samizdat phenomenon, meaning that its albums were copied and distributed person to person, and also his concerts were publicized in the same way, person to person, and you know, technically illegal, uh, unofficial. Um, as an unofficial, non-recognized entity, the group was barred from the state's channels of distribution, but as a result was seen as uncorrupted by the Soviet system. Thus, Soviet's official employment was not musician, but everything from factory worker to wood carver, and then finally, uh, in, through 1986, a boiler room stoker, uh, even when he was already pretty famous. Soy's career received a considerable boost, considerable boost from the liberalization programs of Mikhail Gorbachev, which came to be known, came to be known as Perestroika, or rebuilding. Here we see Gorbachev, who uh, came to power in March 1985 in pro-Perestroika propaganda, conducting the works of V.I. London uh, to the caption, Bravo. Um, the goal of Perestroika was economic restructuring uh, to remedy the economic stagnation that had taken root during the Brezhnev period. But in order for this to happen, there had to be first improved relations with the West, basically so that Gorbachev could redirect resources away from defense spending and towards uh, economic reforms. Uh, Predestroika also required open criticism of social problems and inefficiency, an opening of a space for critique and for solutions. And this is the essence of what was called glasnost, which means openness. Um, glasnost in turn opened the way for a relaxing of censorship, making it possible for uh, groups like Soy to come out from the underground, and also opened the way for the formation of non-state, non non-party organizations, which embarked on a series of causes from environmentalism to anti-nuclear testing to uh, ethnic revivals. Um, thanks to these policies, Soy was able to hit the big time. Kino could, as I said, come out from the underground, and Soy himself, remarked on a very successful film career. So his uh, first major role was in the film Asa, uh, which was produced in 1987 by the Soviet filmmaking behemoth uh, Mosfilm. Uh, Asa is a crime drama set in a Crimean resort about a young dreamer who falls in love with a gangster's mistress. Tsoi isn't at all involved with the plot, actually. He's, he comes only at the very end, uh, after the plot's resolution. The film fades to black, and white lettering on the black screen announces but this isn't the end of the story. It would be unfair not to say what happened later. However, everything is still just beginning. We then see Tsoi playing himself, applying for a music gig at the resort's restaurant through the help of one of the film's main characters, who happens to be African. In the clip I'll show here, the resort's administrator drones on about the rules and regulations attached to the position in a voice that's it's, it's very emblematic uh, of the mind-numbing Soviet bureaucracy that Perestroika sought to remedy. It's, it's just, it kills life, this voice. So with smooth and seamless movements filmed in three long shots, Tsoi here breaks from the confines of Soviet bureaucracy to the beat of one of his most popular songs, Hachu Perimen, or I Want Change. Uh, and I'll show you here the lyrics of the first verse and refrain. Uh, as the song progresses, the film transitions from the Crimean resort to a concert in Moscow, the performance providing forward momentum as the end credits roll by. The song helped to establish Tsoi as the voice and hero of an entire generation, disillusioned with the stagnant everyday features of really existing socialism and seeking something new 
something which at this moment in 1987 is still undetermined. In the following year, Tsui, the Tsui cult received a further boost from his starring role in the blockbuster hit uh, Igla, The Needle, for which he won the Soviet Film Actor of the Year Award. Tsui plays Moro, a gangster who appears one day in Almata, the capital of the Kazakh SSR, in order to collect a debt. While there, he finds that his ex-girlfriend Dina is on heroin, leading him into a battle with the, with the local narco mafia. He seems to succeed and even gets Dina to kick her habit, but only temporarily. By the film's end, she's back on heroin, and in the clip I'll show now, she's unable to hear Moro as he calls to say he's coming to her. Uh, and this clip features the uh, Kino song Blood Type, uh, Grupo Krovi, which the director had in mind from the film's inception. And here are the, uh, here's one verse and the refrain. The um, title at the end reads, Dedicated to Soviet Television, which is preceded by, I'm done, uh, which is preceded by a cliche of Soviet children's programming, uh, a man asking, so kids, do you want more? And to the collective response of, ah, <laughs> uh, the film concludes with a flashback of scenes and characters. Uh, this and the many other Soviet mass culture cliches peppered throughout the film serves to distinguish Tsui's character as a new type of hero, utterly divorced from the ideal types of socialist realism. This hero is withdrawn and silent, an outsider who expresses few emotions. As one Soviet critic noted, Moro characterized a new generation, unable to muster the passion of previous generations which had, quote, laid down their lives by the sacred faith in a better future, unquote. And yet, according to this critic, Soy's character is a hero nonetheless, always doing the right thing, even while keeping his emotions to himself. Uh, he writes, a hidden fire is a fire nonetheless. Of course, Soy's character is not So himself, but his appearance in the film certainly added to his reputation as the Soviet Union's last romantic, or last hero, which was the song of, title of a popular Kino song. Accordingly, in Blood Type, the lyrics here, uh, his emphasis is on constant motion, and there is a kind of heroism in these lyrics, dissatisfied with the material comforts of Soviet life, but bearing morbid expectations for the battle ahead. 
the finale of Eagle Eye encapsulates this morbid heroism with Moro hardly reacting to what's most likely a fatal wound uh, and somehow able to walk off into the horizon as all good heroes must. Soy himself died in a car crash in Latvia on August 15, 1990 at the age of 28. This was at the height of his fame and fans mourned his death all across the Soviet Union with over 60 taking their own lives. Soy's cult, cult status endures to this day. At least when I was there in 2003, the anniversary of his death still made the TV news in Petersburg. Fresh graffiti proclaiming Victor Tsoi lives can still be found across the CIS, and teenagers still cover his songs on street corners, while top Russian pop stars do the same on tribute albums. Indeed, it is after his death, and after the Soviet collapse in 1991, that the image of Tsoi takes some interesting twists, and having provided an overview of Tsoi's stardom, I'll now turn to these twists for the remainder of the talk. There are approximately 450,000 ethnic Koreans living in the uh, former Soviet Union. In the 19th and early 20th century, centuries, famine and Japanese colonial, colonialism drove, these, drove the forebears of these Koreans to the Russian Far East, and in the fall of 1937, Joseph Stalin deported them all, at least 175,000, to the Central Asian steppe. Officially, Stalin questioned their loyalty, fearing a Japanese invasion of Siberia, and it was not until the 1950s that this suspect people was allowed to travel outside of Central Asia. Uh, some, like Tsoi's father, made it to Leningrad and Moscow, but most remained in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, with Almaty becoming the hub of Soviet Korean life and culture. It should be noted that Tsoi was officially registered as Russian, and there is little evidence that he gave much thought to his Koreanness. There is no mention of ethnicity in his music, but regardless, Soviet Koreans, also known as Koryosadam, a term for Korean that's no longer used in Korea, have taken great pride in Soy, championing him as one of their own, as a vehicle for garnering respect from Russian and Kazakh majorities. This journal, uh, this issue of the journal Koryosadam is a case in point. It was uh, published by Russian Koreans in Petersburg in 1992. Um, is devoted entirely to Soy, mostly trading, tracing his life, music, and stardom, like any of the other fanzines pu published at the time, but also uh, adding in a couple of pages evidence of his Korean roots. Um, for instance, it presents this Chinese character for Che, which is Victor, Victor's uh, Korean last name, which somehow is transliterated into Russian as Soy, uh, and the English rendering of Che is typically Choi. Um, and uh, the journal also locates Che's ancestral village in South Korea and publishes for the first time this family photo taken at the birthday celebration of Tsoi's grandfather in the Kazakh city of Kizlorda, another center for Soviet Koreans. So here he is, looking very awkward at the age of 13. In a 1991 essay, Rashid Dugmanov, director of Igla, notes the Soviet Korean fascination with him. In Almaty, the Koreans really sought after Victor. They loved him beyond belief. At first, he regarded this skeptically. In his passport, he had written Russian. But then gradually, he began to feel more and more comfortable in their presence. Every time we flew into Almaty, he would disappear into a Korean restaurant. He really liked their cuisine. <laughs> the suggestion here is that Victor gradually acceded to Soviet Korean claims on him. And interestingly, Lukmanov goes on to essentialize Victor's Asianness. He describes Victor's rapture upon visiting Japan in the spring of 1990 and speculates that his Oriental blood, quote, Oriental blood, played a role in this. The Koryosadam Journal reprints this excerpt and adds that in the fall of 1990, Victor was scheduled to perform in South Korea where, quote, they eagerly awaited him. They most certainly were awaiting him. 
Tsui uh, first became popular among South Korean student activists in the early 1990s. For some, he was an anti-authority figure who was battling Soviet authoritarianism just as they were battling South Korean authoritarianism. For others, he was a beacon of socialism from the Soviet Union. The rock star Yoon Do-hyun was one of these activists, but is perhaps best known now as the voice behind South Korea's nationalist rock anthems for the 2002 World Cup. In 1999, he released uh, an album entitled South Korean Rock Calls Again. Uh, the cover is here. A search for the roots of South Korean rock music. Interestingly, alongside remakes of South Korean classics, Yoon added his version of Victor Tsui's blood type, apparently reinterpreting blood to mean South Korean blood. So here is a little clip of uh, the remake of the song we just heard. So finally, and actually I played this for a, a Slavic professor here and he was just livid and said, you know, the, the, the edge is gone, the edge has been removed, so. Um, but anyway, finally the South Korean uh, production company Acom, most famous for its worldwide hit musical, The Last Empress, uh, which played in Broadway to great acclaim, uh, will be staging a rock opera based on Victor Soy's life in Moscow this fall. Hana Bank, one of South Korea's largest financial institutions, has invested $1.2 million in this production which will be in Russian and will likely tour across the uh, CIS. In short, Victor Tsui has been pressed into the service of South Korean activism, then South Korean nationalism, and now South Korean capitalism. At first a leftist beacon, Tsui has now become an investment opportunity. <laughs> Tsui's South Korean incarnations present at least one way in which Asian Americans, and more specifically Korean Americans, might perceive the star that is, as a representative of a global Korean diaspora uh, connected through Seoul. I, however, see little need for any South Korean middleman, in part because Tsui himself visited the States. Uh, first in 1987, after his songs were released here on an album called Red Wave. Then in January 1990, he screened Igla at the Sundance Film Festival, where he also gave his first and only American concert. So I'll show a couple of snapshots of his visit to the States. Here he is in front of Warhol. Um, here he is at the happiest place on earth. <laughs> and uh, here he is looking rather irritated next to a Chinese mannequin. Um, or, I don't know, smiling somewhat. He was a big hit at Sundance, actually. Uh, Igla sold out each of its showings there. And according to one American who was at his concert, even though the Hollywood types in attendance couldn't understand the words, quote, the passion of his songs overwhelmed them. There is evidence that his American audience highlighted his Asianness. Film reviewers consistently note that he is, uh, American film reviewers consistently note that he is Soviet Korean, whereas this is never mentioned uh, in Soviet reviews. The Seattle Post Intelligencer's reviewer observes that Soy, quote, looks and fights like Bruce Lee. Uh, thus providing, quote, unquote, thus providing one way of making him familiar to Americans. However, Soviet film critic Marina Drazdova provides what I think is a more sophisticated account of Tsui in America. In a 1989 article in the journal uh, Film Art, Iskustvo Kino, she writes that Tsui leads a post-punk culture which flaunts all rules and happens to emanate from California. 
In response to the final scene of Igla, which I showed, Drozdova asks, but where is he heading? To that America where he will never be? And even if that America exists, is it its geographical reality that attracts us or something else? What Drozdova is doing here is presenting Tsoi, his music, and his image as mediators between American and Soviet cultures. Tsoi is crossing the boundary between really existing socialism and liberal democratic capitalism. As an agent in a transition that Drozdova, Drozdova could not have foreseen in 1989. Accordingly, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek lists punk music as one of the triggers of democratization in Eastern Europe, one of the detonators of the old regime. Borrowing from Friedrich Jameson, he describes such triggers as vanishing mediators, which served to tear down the old system, systems, but then were forgotten and overlooked with the ascent of liberal democratic capitalism. The vanishing mediators served to expose, expose the old systems as contingent, old notions of normality as contingent. But once the new systems took root, these medi mediators were no longer needed. And the neglect of Gorbachev, I think, serves as a case in point. Uh, immediately after the Soviet collapse, he almost disappeared. Perishing before the Soviet collapse and the entrenchment of capitalism, Soy could not simply vanish. There was no chance for him to sell out or to emigrate or to become anything less than a countercultural legend. Yet on top of his legend were added his Korean incarnations. And Zizek provides one possible explanation for Soy's ethnicization, an explanation which sees ethnicity from a global perspective. In short, according to Zizek, ethno-nationalism became a tool used by liberal democratic capitalism to fill the void left by the vanishing mediators. Ethno-nationalism as covering up the unruly origins of the new order, as well as the shocks brought by global markets. Indeed, I think it's fair to describe Tsoi's ethnicization as having a tempering effect, or at the very least as drawing attention away from the disruptive content of his image and music. And of course, his supposed Korean roots have made him ripe for the picking by South Korean capital. We have yet to see the Hanabank version of Tsoi, but the very fact of this musical raises the question of ethnicity's relationship to global capitalism. I'm going to stop here, actually, with just the suggestion that Tsoi serves as a case study of ethnic formation vis-a-vis -vis global capital. But if we are to see him as such, he does indeed call, fall, I think, under the purview of Asian American studies. And I have in mind here Lisa Lowe's call for Asian Americanists to, quote, consider different Asian formations within the global or neocolonial framework of transnational capitalism, end quote. So can there be an Asian American soy? Uh, just as there's a South Korean, a Soviet Korean, and Soviet and post-Soviet soy. Uh, I'd like to end with this image of the Tsoi wall on the Moscow Arvat, which I actually found on a South Korean blog. This palimpsest of words, images, and meanings serves as a living monument to Victor, with ever new layers being added by his devotees. In this presentation, I've touched upon just a few of these layers and can only assume that there's room for many others. Thanks. Thank you, David, I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to think, what am I going to say now? I have two very interesting papers in himself and papers I hadn't read before uh, an hour ago or listened to here. Um, I'm not, I don't read Russian. Uh, I haven't seen Lost Horizon in maybe 30 years. And um, I uh, never listened to Victor Tsoi. But I have some random thoughts and reactions and just personal commentaries that might be 
humorous or provocative and uh, hopefully start off the discussion. And we have a good group here, um, and I hope everybody will feel free to jump in after I make these random comments. Uh, maybe I'll start with uh, Steve's uh, presentation about this fascinating guy, Victor Tsui. Um, what I take from the paper of the presentation is uh, a basic truth, uh, uh, affirmed by that photo of Tsui with Andy Warhol's pictures of Marilyn Monroe behind him, which is that none of us are ever in control of our legacies, whether it's Marilyn Monroe, mm. Victor Tsui, or uh, Frank Capra, or whomever. My, I, inclu I include myself, because some of you, <laughs> you know this, I am not that Gordon Chang, <laughs> the one who had a review in the New York Times book review two Sundays ago uh, on a book entitled The Coming Nuclear Showdown with North Korea, or that Gordon Chang who wrote The Coming Collapse of China. So I don't even, so I don't even have control over my name, uh, <laughs> let alone my music or face. But um, I think uh, Steve's has a fascinating uh, discussion of how uh, posthumously this talented person uh, is used, he didn't say misused, but used in various ways to uh, serve various purposes, whether in South Korea or the Soviet Union, and possibly, and I think hopefully, I've had some discussions with Steve about this, hopefully, perhaps maybe even in the United States, you know, have a Victor Tsui uh, relevant to the United States. Uh, I should say something that uh, I too was confused in, I was, I, my identity was confused uh, in, in the Soviet Union. I, I forgot if I told you this, but you showed some images of Victor Soy in Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan in 1987-1980. Well, I was in Kazakhstan around the same time. I was not confused for Victor Soy, <laughs> but I was confused for being Russian, which was interesting. Um, and, uh, and this is related to some things Steve is interested in. This is about how did, did, did dominant societies view its subjects and who is a legitimate Russian and who is a legitimate American. I mean, for those who've heard Asian ancestry in the room, I'm sure you've had instances where your American identity is questioned. Are you really American? Are you overseas? Well, when I was in Alma-Ata on a trip with some other Stanford faculty and uh, uh, researchers, uh, I was constantly mistaken for being Russian. And the, uh, I don't speak Russian, as I said, but the, uh, when I walked around town with my Stanford colleagues who did speak Russian fluently, who were Russian specialists, but who were Caucasian, uh, when we go up to a fruit stand or something run by a Korean, um, they would always turn to me and, uh, and start speaking in Russian to me, like, what do these guys want over here? Like, and, then, <laughs> and then David Holloway and Chip Blacker would respond in Russian to uh, the fruit stand folks. But Almaty was an interesting place because uh, it was, uh, at least from my experience, uh, overwhelmingly non-white. Um, this is the capital of Kazakhstan, one of the largest uh, now independent republics. It's the republic that sits uh, kind of above Afghanistan and China, and it borders on Afghanistan and China, as I recall. Uh, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan, China. There's, there is a common border with China. Yes. And, 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 the, and the dominant nationality in, in, in Kazakhstan are the Kazakhs, and there are Kazakhs in China and the Kazakhs in Kazakhstan, and there's a very interesting border issue there between Russia or Kazakhstan and, and China. But most of the people that I saw in, in Kazakhstan, Alma-Ata there, uh, were either Kazakhs who kind of look like, the guys kind of look like Almor Sharif. Um, they're Turkish in, in ancestry. Uh, and the women, I'm not sure if there's a counter, what the counterpart is in, in Hollywood. 
but uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, uh, what they look like. They're very handsome and, and uh, dramatic-looking people, and, and fascinating music. Um, and I remember we were staying in the hotel, and there were had had popular music going. I'm not call it rock music, because I'm not quite sure how to what to call it. It was some combination of American-style rhythm rock and kind of uh, Kazakh music, as far as I know, Kazakh music. And then all the dance and the hands and all this was some fascinating mix of, of East and West uh, for as a shorthand. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, and then the rest of the town, I walk around, and there were a lot of Koreans. We go to the free market, and then the so-called free market, the vegetable markets, so the flea market. And there were mainly people of Korean ancestry. So walking around town, it was kind of un understandable why I was mistaken for being Korean. But that seems uh, interesting to me. And as it goes back to the nationality issue, where uh, even at that time, and I, this is a broader, I know as far as Steve's broader project about nationality and race, uh, of how despite its failings, and uh, you should correct me if I'm butchering your one of your arguments is, is that even in the idea of uh, Soviet nationality policy of formally recognizing different national groups, that there was a kind of a, a different form of multiculturalism, and one that there were some advantages, certainly clearly many disadvantages and problems, but one in which uh, one could conceivably be accepted as a Soviet citizen and clearly not be a great white Russian. Um, and Victor Tsoi somewhere maybe as one who clearly was not a great white Russian, but as one who uh, was picked up by great white Russian young people as a one who could speak to certain rebelliousness of spirit uh, and a future that they could identify with. So in part, that's what I take um, from, from your, your study. Uh, and something which, even in, as, as in a liberal democracy in the United States, there's some problem with having a Victor Tsoi who could, can we imagine, and uh, someone who looked like Victor Tsoi um, uh, speak for a generation of disaffected youth in America, white youth in America, as somehow articulating their uh, spirit. Uh, I, I would probably answer probably not. Uh, unless, unless, I guess, the closest thing, and I'm not sure how he's viewed, is uh, what's his name? Lincoln Park? Pardon me? Lincoln Park? No, I'm thinking of, you know, The Matrix. Uh, oh, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves, you know. But I don't know how Keanu Reeves is viewed by, by folks. But anyway, uh, thanks, Steve. I wish I could say more. Maybe others could contribute to uh, some observations. Um, Karen's uh, uh, paper, which is sh just a snippet of a very long study, and, and, and uh, um, which we only have a, a portion of here, is a very interesting discussion of uh, this film in which I think she suggests, so she argues that the protagonist, uh, Conroy, uh, Ronald Coleman, mm -hmm. is, is a, in some sense, a spokesperson for uh, Frank Capra. And Frank Capra, as you argue, is trying to uh, present uh, some anti-imperialist, pacifist, anti-imperial vision uh, through uh, this character who uh, becomes attracted to the idea of utopia and the pacifism of this utopia, Shangri-La slash Tibet or something of this sort. Uh, but the message, his message, Campra's message, Coleman's message, it's lost. It's, as you said, it's, it's indecipherable. 
to uh, the American public, so the film is not all that successful. Uh, the film suggests, you suggest, seems to get some more coherence later on when it's reissued, repackaged after 1942, and the film is flipped into becoming less a uh, uh, kind of hope or agenda for for a utopia for peace than now some sort of war message to get people in line to fight Japan. You didn't say whether the film's content uh, was actually changed. I don't we talked about the opening credits and the, how the words were were shifted. Um, that's one curiosity I had whether the film the film story actually uh, changed. Um, but uh, now there were a couple of his, his thoughts I had about this. One is that the film, uh, and I suppose you do in your rest of the longer study, uh, seems to fit, uh, Lost Horizons fits into a whole bunch of films that are coming out in the mid-30s and late-30s. And, and we have a lot of film um, experts here, and you should correct me or comment and elaborate later on. Uh, things, uh, it's always fun to talk about films. I think we all do, you know, because it's a great topics of conversation, but The Wizard of Oz kind of popped into my view as a kind of, you know, the different world, a utopia in some sense where people don't grow up, they don't age. Um, in some sense, there's some thought of, of, of a better place. Uh, even Kansas is somehow seen as a utopia. You talked about that hope for a little chicken farm. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Aunt Em and whatever you know, Dorothy's relatives are back there in Kansas. I mean, Laradava, these the sense of uh, a P of films to try to appeal to the everyday person, as you suggest Frank Copper does in his films, uh, and appealing to this longing for some better world, some to the everyday person. Um, there's another another type of other films that come out around this time uh, dealing with Asia. Uh, the famous one uh, is it Cecil D. DeMille does uh, Shanghai Express. Joseph von Sternberg. John von Sternberg. Mm -hmm. so, so Shanghai Express comes out in 1935 or 36, or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. It has a cast of characters similar to your motley crew on this airplane or this group. I mean, they got kind of shady women, you know, Anna Mae Wong and Marlena Dietrich and these uh, prim and proper British ladies and kind of uptight British gentlemen mm -hmm. and generals and all this kind of strange crew that are all affected by uh, an ongoing Chinese civil war. So you have war in that. Thing too. So the con so there's there's kind of a genre, kind of a context to these films that are kind of set where you have these uh, odd assortment of Europeans who are plopped down and threatened by Asian discord, and something works out from that. The, the other, you know, this potboiler film, a terrible film, is Shanghai Gesture, with uh, some of you think of Victor Mature, who uh, uh, is in that film. Um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interest in Asia in film at the time. You may, some of you may not know, and some of you know of the Shanghai Express, which is one of my popular orientalist films. I mean, I, I kind of like that film. Um, but the opening credits in Shanghai Express, which is uh, this group of Europeans on this train bound for somewhere, and, and they get uh, kidnapped by a China, rebellious Chinese general. But the opening scenes that show, I think, this, this chaos and disorder uh, which looked documentary, it was that film and footage, in fact, was filmed by James Wong Howe, who had gone to China to try to film a, a, a film on contemporary China. But he never got the film together, and he brought back that footage and sold it to 
uh, Griffith for the uh, for uh, to, uh, uh, director for this film. Uh, so there are a lot of people interested in in in, in China, and of course the, the big film of '37 is The Good Earth, uh, with again some similar background: civil war, discord, poverty. Uh, although there are European or Caucasian characters, ac characters do not appear in that film. But so Asia is something which is is appealing to American audiences. Uh, uh, they, all these films that appeal to the common person, both in like the uh, the, the Good Earth or Wizard of Oz or uh, uh, Grapes of Wrath, all these films that come out uh, on film around that time. But there's also another context uh, that I'm wondering about, and then that might sh shift. And I raise these as questions because I don't know the film well at all. That what is it possible that Coleman really isn't a spokesperson for anti-imperialism, but is a conflicted uh, a character that Capra is using to raise comments or questions or criticisms about the issue of appeasement? Uh, the film is made in 34, 35. It's released in 37. So it's around this gestation period 36 and 37. here, 36 and 37. Now, Neville Chamberlain, you have the British, you know, here it is, uh, comes struck with Conway is also the British secretary, newly appointed secretary. Now, for many Americans in the mid-1930s, the British are seen as the appeasers. Uh, and Neville Chamberlain has gone to Munich and all this in the early 1930s. And, and, and appeasement at that time was an immensely popular uh, hope at that time, in which people thought that war and the horrors of World War I could be avoided, the repeat of the horrors of World War I. And so World War I does, you're right, I think, hang over the heads of uh, audiences and, and direct people all around the world. No one wants another world war, even though we all know in retrospect that that's just around the corner. Uh, and appeasement comes along, and Neville Chamberlain is, is, is immensely popular for this in many quarters of the West. And there is the belief that now there will be peace in our lifetime, peace forever and there will be no war. And so this is the message which is connected to appeasement uh, and the issue pops into what calls pacifism. Now that all, that kind of uh, understanding is an interpretation is all turned around, of course, as the 1930s goes along and it becomes clear or more and more people uh, are, are, are in America in particular are won over slowly to the belief that fascism has to be stopped beyond Lend-Lease, beyond um, boycott and some of this. Uh, but in the mid and latter part of 1930s, the United States is really tortured in its attitude towards fascism and what the United States should do to help these people who are being overrun, these 90 people who are being rescued uh, from, from butcher, being, being butchered in the film. Uh, but that clip that you showed of uh, Coleman uh, 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 breaking down and talking about what he wants to do about going forward and, and, and talking to an aggressor and say, come on in, and, and maybe a whole different way of thinking about how to meet aggression. And, and, and he uh, says that's what he's supposed to be doing, but he's conflicted about it. And one way of thinking about that, that might be an expression of the genuine anxiety, anguish, that some Americans have about that policy in regards to, uh, to uh, certainly Hitler. Uh, now this, uh, you, for example, this, uh, this uh, when you talk about uh, 
in Shangri-La being this utopia, and in one quote here you say that the people's prolonged lives is not a result of the climate, but from their people's lack of struggle. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting term in the film, lack of struggle. Um, and then there's this, this, this matter of, uh, uh, of Capra himself, you say, in 1936, after the release of It Happened One Night in 1936, he suffers a nervous breakdown, and he's hospitalized. He recounts that he has the visit from this little man, I guess his conscience or God or something coming to speak to him about his life, chastising him for not using his God-given talents for a divine purpose. And then he says that while this little man was shaming him, Hitler's raspy voice was shrieking out of the radio. And then, as you say here, according to Capra, it was after that experience that he, Capra, began to feel conflict, conflict over making films for entertainment solely. Thus, the making of Lost Horizon represented Capra's newfound responsibility in making films that would provide m meaningful purpose in the form of social critique. Um, um, so, all right, but what is, what is this new social critique? Is Capra now wondering whether this idea of isolationism in America, uh, which again is another, another was, was a synonym for utopia for many Americans, of, uh, uh, of being abstracted from violence, being abstracted from the torment of Europe, um, whether um, uh, that was in fact the way uh, the United States uh, should go, and whether Capra in fact is uh, uh, somehow are trying to articulate the, uh, the, at least the, the anguish over what to do of one who wants peace but it feels that peace, that the appeasement approach, the non-aggressive approach is uh, wise or not. And so his identification with the little man is really the little man's a questioning of, a moral questioning of the morality of appeasement, of isolationism and um, a removal from the real word to some um, uh, utopia yeah. that in fact is not real and has all sorts of uh, ambiguous meaning. As I read here, people leave utopia and they disintegrate and they become horrible corpses in a moment because uh, they're really 250 years old and then they step into the real world and they disintegrate and become old. Uh, so. To me, I, um, oh, those are just some questions I raise uh, for you. Um, some of these other little references, uh, I'm just curious about these, these folks who are on this uh, mission with the Conroy. There's the, the British, there's the paleontologist. Well, that's interesting because, again, this is a current event. What's, what's happening in, in paleontology at the time is uh, there's the discovery, in the, I believe, in the 20s, and there is a so-called Peking man. And there's also, either in the late 30s, around this time, or maybe it was right after the war, I can't recall, uh, an American paleontologist who went to China and discovered, there were a lot of discoveries at the time, the Peking Man, uh, dinosaur bone discoveries in the Gobi Desert, and, and also the discovery of, of, of the third variety of redwood trees. And this is a complete sidelight to this discussion. There are two red, there are three redwood varieties, and redwoods are very ancient trees. And there are two that we have native in California, the Sequoia and the, and the uh, Pacific. 
and both you see them in the center, in the you know Yosemite. You can see both of them. And there's, but there were, they found out that there was a third, and that was indigenous to China, which is called a dawn redwood, which is now all around the United States, including we have on campus. But that tree was also discovered at the time. So paleontology was also kind of a, a, big, a big deal um, in international news. So there are a lot, it seems to me, references to current events um, and, uh, and, and uh, to try to appeal to, I think, an audience concerned with some of these current events. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay, thank you. Why don't we open it up for some questions? Celine. I have a question for you. What were the larger sexual discourses around um, Victor Tsoi's masculinity? And this is a three-part question for me. The first is, you know, at the time of his birth, here in the United States, it was, you know, the era of, you know, anti-miscegenation laws. So how, you know, how did his parents get together? And um, the second is, um, <laughs> What was the kind of discourse of otherness in terms of his masculinity, not only in terms of you know state regulation of sexual liaisons, but also in terms of the popular register, right? How did how did you know their, his otherness register historically in the contemporary, and also in contemporary terms? And I guess the third is was he a heartthrob? Like was he in any way kind of sexualized as a celebrity? Mm -hmm. um, he was most certainly a, a heartthrob. I think. Uh, the, right around the, uh, the news reports announcing his death uh, noted that, you know, in Petersburg alone, the suicide rate increased by 30%, and these were mostly young girls uh, before the age of 21. Um, I think, I don't know terribly much about uh, miscegenation in the Soviet Union uh, from the 60s and 70s, but I do know that you know, there was a lot of, you know, intermarriage. And I think, you know, having lived in Central Asia, it was very typical to see uh, Russian women with Asian men. For party members in particular, it became very much a bonus for, you know, a Kazakh man or for an Uzbek man to marry a Russian woman uh, because, you know, this was a way of sort of gaining ascendancy. So there was a kind of valuation of, of miscegenation, actually, from a certain sort of political standpoint. Uh, and, you know, even the... Um, the president, for example, of Uzbekistan right now, who's a horrible dictator, uh, he's married to a Russian woman. Uh, same with the current president of Kyrgyzstan. These are all both old party members who who sort of, you know, came 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 to age uh, when you know there was still plenty of miscegenation. Um, Viktor Tsoi's father was an engineer. His mother was a school teacher, and they met in uh, Leningrad. I don't know the details of how they met, actually. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it's something that's not really talked about in interviews that she gives or essays she writes about Victor Tsoi. I mean, how she met her father is something that just sort of gets pushed to the background. And so it's almost as though it's, it's commonplace, actually. It's something that doesn't even merit special, special mention. Um, and you, you mentioned the discourse of otherness uh, and masculinity, uh, how, I guess, Asians might have been seen as masculine. Is, is that it? Or? Right. So much so that maybe their otherness, their masculinity is not associated with racialization. It's just so interesting. Right. I think it's a very interesting topic, actually. I mean, I do sort of ethnicity in the Soviet Union. I think gender in the Soviet Union is a fascinating topic, and it's actually being tackled right now by somebody named Kate Baldwin at Notre Dame. 
But you know, one of the programs, in addition to liberating uh, nationalities, oppressed nationalities in the 20s and 30s, was liberating women. Uh, and for example, in Uzbekistan, uh, because there couldn't be a proletariat, they couldn't locate, the Soviets could not locate a proletariat, they identified the women, the oppressed veiled women, as what they called, or as one, one American scholar, Douglas Northrop, calls the surrogate proletariat. Um, the socialist holiday, the 8th of March, which was created actually in New York, is, is a huge Soviet holiday, uh, still actually across the uh, second world, former second world. And so you definitely have, you know, some overtures to equality in the Soviet, to gender equality, as, a, as well as ethnic equality in, in, in the Soviet Union and the former second world. But on top of that, you have a lot of inequality as well. Um, and there are stories of, for instance, uh, teams of Soviet scholars coming to the United States and talking about gender equality and ethnic equality. And then somebody in the audience noted, well, why are you all men coming to, to, to America on these tours? And they would respond, well, who would take care of the kids if, if we didn't come? Mm. So it, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's, I guess, the meat of the question, though, is what is the connection, I guess, to ethnicity? I mean, how, how, in gen how might gender and ethnicity might, might be connected? And, and to be honest, it's something I'm, I'm still trying to, to wrap my head. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think, well, in Igla, he is, his, his girlfriend is, is Russian. The, you know, he comes to the rescue of this Russian woman. He himself is married to a Russian, uh, Tsoi. Um, and so, in the movie, though, there is a kind of lack of passion in their, in their interactions. Mm -hmm. So it, it is interesting that... I mean, it's, it's been described by critics as part of this overarching lack of emotion and this new type of hero who, who just is sort of passive to everything and, you know, is, is sexual, but in a very kind of muted way. But that's not necessarily being a feature of, of his ethnicity, but being a feature of, of his generation. That's cool. Is that cool? Well, I mean, that's, that's you know, James Dean. Playing it cool, right. He plays it cool. Daryl? Yeah. Yes, Karen, that was a wonderful paper. Um, uh, I've written about Lost Horizon myself in, in another context, and uh, I wonder if you could comment on another type of containment that is taking place within the film. I haven't seen it for a while, but I'm fairly familiar with it. I went through it very, very closely. Uh, specifically, the type of containment I'm talking about is uh, the containment of white racial purity, because it's, as you know from the film, the Ronald Coleman character is kind of imported and kind of held against his will by the High Lama in order to inseminate the Jane Wyatt character <laughs> so that they could reproduce the, the white race in, in the heart of Asia. Why not have one of the local Chinese people <laughs> inseminate her? Yeah, why not her? Chang? Yeah, why, um, not, why not that? Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because there, I mean, you know, despite the fact that the film seems to be about utopia and anti-imperialism, there is, there is, of course, this total colonial setting, right? You have all the Tibetans there, so-called Tibetans, they were actually Navajos that were recruited by Capra <laughs> to play Tibetans because you can't find Tibetans in California around Los Angeles. So, you, you know, you ask Navajos in the nearby tribe. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're the ones who are the workers. They do everything they serve. And then, you know, you have basically the white people that live in the sort of Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, kind of uh, palace um, who get to do lots of leisure things like ride horseback and talk to each other, have nice meals and talk about books and music. So there definitely is, I mean, I think there definitely is this issue of sort of like this 
civilization that is being preserved here, because that's the whole point that Father Perot talks about is while there's wars raging outside, um, we can preserve all the best that the world has ha history has had to offer and preserve it here. And that's what we've been doing for the last 250 years, bringing them in piecemeal, using the Tibetan porters to bring them in piecemeal every few years so that when you know Armageddon happens, we'll have everything here, right? And that's essentially what James Hilton's novel is about. And there is actually a really interesting article written about the novel where it's, it's really about decolonization, right? The fears of what's really happening in the 1930s at this time, what's sort of underguarding World War I and World War II is that these colonies are being lost. You know, what is sort of happening to these imperialist countries, right? They're losing their colonies, they're losing their countries. And so here we have this sort of preserve of whiteness that's there. But once you transpose it into an American context, that's what's what makes the film so interesting is that it was originally a British novel. Um, and Ronald Coleman, of course, is the quintessential sort of, you know, he, he's, he was the quintessential actor of the British Empire films that were really popular in the 20s and 30s. Um, and that at the same time, it has a decidedly American context in a way that I don't know if it can be read totally as about whiteness. I think that's an easy read of it in some ways. Um, and I think that's something that's already embedded within it because it's, all, it's, it's a Hollywood film. Um, but I guess part of me thinks that there's other things that Capra hopes that this film is. Whatever his perceptions are of this film, and I think Gordon's kind of right about this, utopia is ambiguous. It's very ambivalent because it's not about anti-war, especially given his feelings about it. It's about trying to do something about what's ha what he perceives as something happening in Europe that is uncontrollable. Um, but what's interesting is that it is a film that becomes really ripe for sort of American nationalism to be taken, even though the plot doesn't get changed, it gets reconstructed. So, you know, even just by putting things in like China or Japan or changing the dates, what is it about this film that seems that nobody seems to be able to do anything about? In fact, there's one really funny anecdote in his, in Capra's autobiography where this is during the opening of the film and people start walking out of the movie. They start laughing during points that he didn't expect them to laugh at. And he goes out, he, he breaks out into a cold sweat and he goes outside to get a drink of water and some other guy who doesn't know that he's the director comes up to him and says, can you believe this Fu Manchu thing? It's so horrible. So that comment is really interesting because it's this perception that somehow is this film about yellow peril, orientalism, no, it's really bad version of it. We don't know what to do with it, right? And, um, and yet at the same time, it, it, was so, it, it was so easily malleable for nationalist purpose to become something like whiteness. I agree, I agree it's nationalist, but more specifically, mm -hmm. it's, but, but more specifically it's white racial nationalism we're talking about. British white supremacy as well as American uh, white supremacy uh, embedded in this imperial discourse. That's, that's the point I'm trying yeah, to make. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think that's what makes it so, even if, the, the, even if it doesn't, I guess it's something that's not as explicit, and yet, yeah, I think that's what makes it easy to be appropriated. I'm struck by, by the way the paper's connected on the issue of masculinity and the way that it's politically and ideologically and historically inflected. I really like Gordon's comment about appeasement, because I'm thinking of another Ronald Coleman film who did uh, Talk of the Town? 
Have you seen Talk of the Town? Do you know? It's a great, it's a conflicted film because Ronald, okay. He play, exactly, he plays a um, law professor, maybe Yale, who's in a retreat someplace in Connecticut, and Cary Grant is this person who's accused of having blown up this factory as being a sort of radical union leader, right? So he goes on the lam, and he hides out in his ex-girlfriend's house, who happens to be renting it, or Ronald Coleman's renting it from her. So he has to make a deliberation as to whether he's, and Cary Grant's full of all this, you know, what's wrong with American justice system or the political system is just so hypocritical and conflicted and elitist. And Ronald Coleman sort of goes to this conflictual thing. Is he going to turn in Cary Grant or not? And, uh, and that the limit gets played out in this sort of serial comic uh, film. And at the end, he does the right thing and becomes um, a Supreme Court judge. But Cary Grant gets the girl. You know, Ronald Coleman gets the Supreme Court branch, but, but it really feeds in. I'm wondering about these other issues of how this idea of masculinity being pulled toward either a hardline, legalistic, realistic um, ideology or versus a liberal accommodation. And it plays out in both domestic and foreign ways. And um, so I thought the papers really resonated well with each other about, you know, what does it mean to be masculine in this, and in the, the cool version or the aggressive version or the, or the considerate, accommodative version really was, was quite um, uh, interesting, both those papers and in, and in Gordon's comment after that. How about one more question and then we can take a break and then watch some films. A comment for Steve, a really fascinating paper and coming from, um, at it from the Slavic perspective. The, uh, the idea of um, borrowings and translatability, I think, is really interesting as you highlight in the way you structure your paper with the, the reconstruction of Victor Tsoi in, in the many different languages. Um, and the loop you make at the end back to American culture, I think um, it, 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 it makes a full circle to like quinoa, the um, the, the name of the band, which also seems kind of a Hollywood reference, and then you, with your reference to Sundance, just this, uh, the universal currency of like, uh, this American pop culture, like rock and quinoa, and how um, certain words become eminently translatable, and borrowings can be embedded in, in this new um, transnational kind of culture, um, and, and what happens with that. So linguistically on the level of words, but then also in a bigger way, how how he can be translated into so many different cultures and how borrowings are so welcome. Um, yeah, this kind of universal language that's attained. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Oh, I could have one more question. That's, that was more of a comment. Uh, any other? Yeah, just. Uh, I'm going to follow up on what Sarah was talking about, Steve. Um, mm -hmm. I guess my question is about if you could talk a little bit more about the subcultural element here um, that Sarah just brought up, um, it seems that in the Russian context, context, especially before Perestroika, there was a very specific subculture that he's a part of that we can still see the remnants of in the graffiti and different kinds of memorials to him. Um, I understand as well how Sundance has a piece of that to it and how coming to that particular world seems pretty natural because he started in this, let's say, edgy environment and then became more mainstream, as Sundance did as well. Could you talk a little bit about the South Korean um, appropriations of him? You mentioned there's a wide range politically, but also, does he fit into any subcultural niche there? 
And is that part of why he's translated, not just because of his ethnicity, but also because of his very particular style? Hmm. I think how I understand this, and actually a lot of what I presented on South Korea was, was uh, pointed to me by uh, an anthropologist here, somebody in CASA, her name is uh, Man Young Cho, who actually uh, was one of the, she, she first heard of Tsoi in the 50s, and she was one of these, these activists who uh, actually in China first heard of Tsoi through uh, a boyfriend of hers. And the impression I got is that not just in South Korea, but in China, Tsoi had some resonance. I think actually it, a lot of it does have to do with his, his ethnicity, um, that there is this kind of energy that, that he possesses, and, and I think we could characterize it as, as being you know, part of the subculture. But the fact that you know, he is Korean compels, I think, both Chinese and, and, and South Korean uh, activists, and I think at the inception it is largely activists to appropriate soy and, and make him their own. So I'm, honestly, I, I don't know too much about South Korean subculture and the scene there, but the impression I get is that there are you know, ethnic and, and political motivations, mostly informing this particular version, this particular incarnation of Tsoi. Well, thank you all three and all of you for coming. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.